I'm excited to be preaching this morning as we begin a four-part walk through uh, a study on evangelism. Uh, and so in order to begin this morning, I've got a story to tell, as is per usual. I went to the University of North Texas. Go Mean Green. Any other Mean Green in the room? Give a caca! Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I've got a handful. Yeah, all right. We showed up this morning. I lived in a dorm that was on one end, one corner of the campus, and, I, and most of my classes were in the English building, and it was on the clear other corner of the campus. So I would walk the whole length, sometimes twice or three times a day. And in those walks, I would see some interesting things. Early in the fall, for instance, I would see the fraternities, all three of them. UNT was not very big into Greek life. All three of them would be out there setting up shop recruiting pledges for the year. During election seasons, I would walk, and the, the walkways would be lined with activists and political types asking for signatures and informing the students what existential threat we should fear the most that particular week. But twice a year, twice a year, as I made the long trek from dorm room to classroom, I would see a large loud group gathered around what appeared to be a very angry middle-aged man. And this was a man I would come to know as Bible and Barstool Man. Have you ever seen Bible and Barstool Man before? Maybe he didn't visit your college campus. Let me paint you a picture. Bible and Barstool Man would wander onto campus once a semester, ready to remind the students of North Texas that we were hopelessly amoral and destined for the flames of eternal hell. It was quite the sales pitch. He would preach some hateful rhetoric. Have you seen him before? The crowd would yell back in anger, and most of the student body would walk right by maybe stopping to listen for a minute or two before getting bored with the circus and continuing on to class. You may have met Bible and Barstool Man. Maybe you haven't seen him. Maybe you've seen one of his associates, Megaphone Man. Have you seen him? Or what about Street Corner End Times Prophet Guy? You wandered across his path? Or maybe you've seen lady in the front of the grocery store angry about that one sin that bothers her a lot. You see, no? Oh, y'all aren't even laughing with me. This is going to be a long sermon. Long sermon. We got out 10 minutes early at 8.15, so y'all should be thankful. I'm up here three weeks in a row. And it's not even cowboy season. I'm guessing you've been around someone like this before, and I'm also willing to bet they didn't really sell you on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately for a lot of us today, when we hear the word evangelism, we get an image like Bible and Barstool Man, someone standing out in public yelling at passersby. Maybe you think of a door-to-door -door salesman type. Unfortunately, if that is our image of what it means to evangelize, then we should be unsurprised that most churchgoers don't really feel all too inspired to get out and spread the good news. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about what evangelism means and what it means for us to be an evangelistic church. Why do we do this thing that we know is supposed to be important, and where can we go wrong? 
Today I want to start small and simply get at the why question. Like most things in life, if we don't understand why we're doing something, then we will have a much harder time doing whatever it is we're supposed to do. And to understand the why of evangelism, we turn this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, as we discover Jesus in the midst of a heated debate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Let me set the stage for a moment. We arrive in the midst of an ongoing conversation that really is more like a cornering where the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing their darndest to trap Jesus in his own words and expose him to be some sort of fraud. They know that he is gaining this reputation as being a radical, someone teaching the Jewish people to rethink this faith that they've been given from their parents and their priests. Rethinking is not something that deeply entrenched institutional leaders are keen to do too often. And so you might understand why the Pharisees and Sadducees try so desperately to defame this grassroots rabbi. What we're about to read is the Pharisees asking Jesus a simple question, rooted in tradition, and they hope that Jesus will fall into a heretical trap. This is a scripture I'm sure many of us are familiar with, but let's open our hearts to hear again this answer that Jesus offers, not only to the Pharisees, but to you and to me as well. Let's rise for a reading of the gospel according to Matthew, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, he said, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today, out of this well-worn yet vibrant text, I'd like to address three issues that get at the heart of why we evangelize. So I am a millennial, so I've been told. <laughs> I'm not really sure what it means to be a millennial. Have you heard this term before? It's what they call people of my generation. Supposedly, a millennial is someone who loves participation awards, and we have thin skin, and we enjoy expensive avocado on our toast. For the record, I've thrown away my participation awards. Teasing is a love language in the Gilliland family and toast is just fine with jelly and butter. Amen? There we go. I've got you with me, at least on that point. So maybe I'm a bad millennial, but millennials are my people. And I'll spend my life pastoring people with too many trophies and not enough contentment, too much ambition and not enough perseverance, and too expensive of taste with too thin a wallet. 
These are my people, and I'll admit frequently, I'm a millennial too. One thing I notice about my generation more and more is that even though we are more connected on a surface level through technology than any generation before us, we are also perhaps the most private. We might post a rant or two on Facebook or a photo of our adorable daughter eating a very messy dinner. But when it comes to the deep stuff, the real stuff, the what I think about life stuff, the what I think about God stuff, or the what I think about myself deep, deep down stuff, we tend to keep that bottled up. When you combine that with faith, it makes for an interesting cocktail. We've got a generation of young people who have more access to ideas and thoughts and ways of being than ever before. They can go online and read C.S. Lewis and Aristotle and Gandhi and Sun Tzu and Joel Osteen, and yet, in my observation, they are less likely to engage in spiritual dialogue than any generation before. And maybe that's because they don't want to come across like Bible and Barstool Man. But the reality is the Christian faith was never designed to be a private practice. John Wesley believed this to his core. When talking about the Christian faith, Wesley said, solitary religion is not to be found in here. There is no holiness, he says, but social holiness. What he's saying is that our holiness, our pursuit of the life that God would have us live, ought not be contained to our private lives, but rather this pursuit should spill out into our worlds, into our communities, and into the streets of our cities, into the dinners with friends and the coffees with neighbors. For Wesley, The pursuit of God in our private lives through personal prayer and study of Scripture was only good so long as it actually had an effect on the lives lived outside ourselves. And more than that, we ought to pursue holiness in relationship with other Christians as well. It's a novel idea. For the record, Wesley wasn't inventing this line of thinking. He was simply building on the teaching of Jesus that we find in Matthew's Gospel. Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But that's not the full story with Jesus. He goes on to say, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's something about loving God that is innately woven into loving others, and we simply cannot pursue one without pursuing the other. What does this mean for us this morning. Today, I think this is simply the first part of the why we evangelize. We evangelize first and foremost because we cannot claim to love God unless we seek to bring good news to the world and people around us. This morning, I hope that whether you're a millennial or the grandparent of one, I think that's everybody, you know that a personal faith is only half the equation. We simply cannot be content to let God be the best-kept secret in our lives. And we cannot afford to walk through this life alone when God has given us a world around us to be in relationship with. The second part of our why we evangelize has a lot to do with what we consider evangelism. 
Traditionally, classically, most of us probably think of evangelism in the strictest sense as going out and telling people about the name of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of correct. The problem with this understanding of evangelism, going out and sharing the name of Jesus Christ, honestly, in the city of Dallas, how many people do you think have not heard the name of Jesus Christ? I mean, really, you're allowed to laugh at that because it's kind of funny. In the city of Dallas, I mean, we live in a city where you can't go five minutes without tripping over a church and landing in a Bible study. I don't care if you immigrate here from a corner of the world that never knew who Christ was, you get off the airplane in Dallas, you're going to know the name of Jesus Christ in about 10 minutes. Which is why I think now more than ever it's important for us to expand our view of what it means to evangelize. At the beginning of the message, I said I define evangelism as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The reason I use that definition, sharing the good news, is because I think good news might sound different to different people, and just telling the story of Jesus might not be enough. Now stay with me. There's an old saying, maybe you've heard it, you can't hear the gospel on an empty stomach. Frequently, when Jesus was ministering to the community around him, before he shared his message of joy or hope, he offered tangible expressions of joy and hope through miracles and signs and wonders that allowed joy and hope to be understood and received as real. In Dallas and Collin counties, we have somewhere in the ballpark, take a guess, 2,000 churches Dallas and Collin County, somewhere around 2,000 Christian churches. Here's another stat. In Dallas and Collin Counties, we have just over 1,000 unsheltered homeless persons. 2,000 churches, 1,000 unsheltered people. That means if just one out of every two churches housed a homeless person, we could house our current unsheltered population. That's pretty amazing. But it's also one of the biggest critiques I hear about the church from those millennial friends that I come across. They say that we really only are focused on ourselves and we don't really care for our surrounding communities because they see thousands of churches, and yet they also see the issues that continue to affect our cities and they wonder what those thousands of churches are really doing to make a difference. It's hard to hear the gospel on an empty stomach. This is why mission and outreach are so vitally important. Not just because of the good we can accomplish when we work together, but because when we do good in the name of Christ, we make a statement to a world that is increasingly convinced that we are either hypocrites or at best apathetic. Can the city of Dallas hear the message of Jesus Christ with new ears until the churches of Dallas step up in radical ways to address some of the issues that matter most to our neighbors? It's hard to hear the gospel on an empty stomach. Before we can preach to open ears, we're going to have to feed some empty stomachs. And just like before, the pursuit of one is intrinsically tied to the other. But before we roll up our sleeves and lace up our boots and go out to be the hands and feet of Christ, let me offer one word of caution. 
Because in this pursuit lies one of our greatest pitfalls, I think, especially in the United Methodist denomination, which I have known and loved my entire life. Who here loves to sing the song, they will know we are Christians by our love? Show of hands, say amen. Ah, oh, it's a good room. It's a wonderful song. It's full of truth straight from Jesus' words to the disciples. But I'm afraid that this song and Jesus' words get abused slightly, propped up as an excuse for us to fall into complacency. Here's what I mean. I think sometimes we are happy to do the work, but we're not so comfortable talking to people about why we do it. You may be thinking, hey, Scott, if I just treat people with love, that, that's good enough for me. I've put something good into the world. Isn't that good enough? Or maybe you're thinking, Scott, I don't want to be one of those Christians who put their faith in everyone's faces all the time. Shouldn't we just be good for the sake of being good? I understand those points. I've been there too in my own life, but let me tell you why I think evangelism has to at some point include telling people about your faith and about Jesus and about the gospel. Now first, I want to say you're right. There are a lot of people in this area, the areas in which we live, who put their faith in everyone's faces. And guess what? In this pastor's humble opinion, I don't think all of them are the best representation of Christ. I've been flipped off by someone driving a car with the fish on the back. Have you? I know I'm not alone. I can't be the only driver who cuts someone off occasionally. That's why I think it's important that when we perform an act of love, no matter how big or how small, if there is a chance to witness to our faith, we ought to. When we perform an act of love and we have the chance to witness to our faith and we don't do it, we've lost the chance to give someone another image of what it means to be a Christ follower, and it might be an image they desperately need. Which brings me to the big point here. When we take the opportunity to witness to our faith in the midst of a loving kindness, we don't do it for ourselves or for our own personal glory. We do it for the sake of the other person. What could possibly be more loving than to open the door for someone else to have a relationship with the God who loves them? This might be a region with thousands of churches, but I'm increasingly convinced that what we have in Dallas is a cultural Christianity that by and large is kept tame and reserved to Sunday mornings as long as they don't infringe upon the Cowboys schedule. What the people of our communities need is a living relationship with a living God who loves them, and expressing God's love is only half the equation, church. I know we just want to help, but we've got to talk about Jesus too. Once we express God's love to our neighbors and the opportunity is there, if we witness to the relationship we found with God here at Lover's Lane, we will do more than simply inspire gratitude. Let me put it this way, as plainly as I can. If you treat someone with love, it could change their day. If you tell them why you do it, it could change their life. So yes, we need to feed hungry bellies, but we also need to preach to open ears. And yes, they might know we are Christians by our love, but it doesn't hurt to tell them just for the sake of telling them. This brings us to the last why for evangelism. 
And really, this is the root of it all. I love the scripture we read this morning. It's one of it's one that I've come back to time and time again, not only in my ministry, but also in my personal life, just as a Christian. It's so beautiful and powerful and simple. Jesus does something profound when answering this question. As I said before, the Pharisees were hoping to trap him in a heresy. They knew that he was a radical rethinker of the faith that they held so dear. What they didn't anticipate was his thoroughly orthodox traditional answer to this thoroughly orthodox traditional question. Just like John Wesley didn't invent social holiness, Jesus didn't invent these commandments. He was simply quoting Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was home to this answer. It was the most traditionally Jewish answer he possibly could have given. Deuteronomy is like the most traditionally Jewish book in the Bible. These were the two high commandments handed down to the Israelites generations and generations and generations before whispers of a Messiah were even on the lips of the prophets. Jesus' answer was nothing new, and its genius is found in its simplicity. To understand why, we have to understand what happens earlier in the conversation. Before this exchange, you notice at the beginning of our scripture this morning, it said Jesus silenced the Sadducees. Well, what happens before this conversation is the Sadducees are cornering Jesus, and they're trying to get him to explain an answer to a very convoluted scenario. It's like stump the Jesus, basically. So here's the scenario. There's a man who marries a woman. The man dies. So then the woman is given to be married to his younger brother so that the family line can continue and their inheritance would stay united. Well, then that younger brother dies and, and she marries the next brother. And then that brother dies and she marries the next brother and so on and so on until she has married all seven of these dead brothers. It's ridiculous. You're allowed to laugh. The Bible has jokes. It really does. So they ask Jesus, when God resurrects us in the end, which brother will she be married to, huh? They think they've gotten him. And Jesus' answer is basically, who cares? Go read your Bibles. That's basically what he says. It doesn't matter. Nobody's married in the resurrection. Who cares? That's a silly question. They're left kind of dumbfounded. Before that exchange, the Pharisees have cornered Jesus for the first time, and they're asking him about coins. They say, this coin has Caesar's face on it. Should good Jews pay taxes to Caesar? What they're trying to do is to see if Jesus is going to fall into their trap. Again, they, they thought they were being clever because they were trying to expose him as either a crazy wingnut radical who would say, no, don't pay your taxes, stick it to the man, ha! Or he'd be this hypocritical supporter of Roman occupation. Instead, he tells them, it's Caesar's face, so I guess it belongs to him. Are you going to give to God what belongs to God? Again, the Pharisees are exposed. By the time we get to this question about commandments, we've seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees revealed as legalistic, small-minded, short-sighted fools who cannot grasp the enormity of who Jesus is. Put simply, 
They are overthinking it. They are overthinking it. Church, do you ever overthink it? I know I do. It's confession time. And then Jesus gives us a simple reminder of what everything really is about. It's not about taxes or tithes. It's not about legal loopholes or hypothetical hoopla. Ultimately, this faith, this thing that we all have and hope for is all about love. Don't overthink it. It is all about love. Love of God, love for each other, and in both, learning to love ourselves in the way that God would love us. This is why we evangelize. Because once you strip away the choir and the organ and the pulpit and the pews and the steeple and the sign on the street corner, this thing that we call faith is about love. So leave the bar stool at home, leave the megaphone at home. Remember the simple truth at the heart of this faith that we all hold dear. This week, remember what it means to be in love with God. Remember what it means to simply be in love with the one who made you, who redeemed you, and who renews you every morning when you rise. Remember what it means to go into a world with people who hunger and thirst. And remember what good news might sound like to them. Remember to preach the name of Christ to those with fresh ears. And remember, never overthink it. It's all about love. Amen.